We're on this, uh, I don't know how long this journey will be through Acts, but we're on it. And Acts is a book that is written uh, by Luke, Dr. Luke, and he wrote his account of Jesus, an account of the, 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 the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he went on to describe uh, what happened after Jesus had ascended to heaven, this unbelievable you know, event of this man coming to earth, claiming to be God, doing miracles, dying on a cross. Uh, they'd never seen anything like this. And then rising from the dead, having 500 witnesses and impacting and transforming people in an extraordinary capacity and then releasing through these people the same presence and power that he had had. And thus was the beginning of the early church. And everything about God was miraculous. Everything about Jesus was miraculous and it was hard for the people on earth to understand what the kingdom of heaven looked like on earth. It was hard for them to appreciate this was actually part of reality as it is for us. And one of the reasons why it's important for us to look through the scriptures and begin to dig deeper into the scriptures is to understand that God is not like us. He is unbelievable. And if you try and get to God from earth, you just end up with shaking your head. If you try and say, how can, a God, how can there be a God of love when I look at the suffering in the world, you shake your head and give up. He can't because he can't care. Why? Because he must be like me. We need a revelation from heaven to earth, which is in Jesus. A revelation that God is not like us, that he is good. And there is a reason for some of the chaos we see. And there's also an answer for some of the chaos we see. And so Acts is the beginning of men and women trying to make sense of this extraordinary God who had begun an extraordinary move of his spirit that had actually been foretold throughout the Old Testament, which they said they loved. But they said they loved the Old Testament, they loved God, they were God's chosen people. And then when God chose to come to his chosen people in his chosen way, they went, excuse me, we didn't sign up for this and we didn't think it would look like this. Our agenda was actually that you would rescue us from the Romans. Our agenda was that you would look after our homes and our children. We had a, a self-centered agenda. Our agenda was our tribe in the world being anointed by God and he would look after us. We would be his favorites and to hell with everybody else. Not like us, right? And God's agenda was, I want to use you, my chosen people, to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the world, that they will know that I have actually come, that all men and women will know me because they are all my children. I have a much bigger agenda. And so Acts began to unfold where the disciples were filled with the power of God, the Spirit of God, because the first basic truth of Christianity is, and the Alpha Course uh, leads to this place. You cannot actually follow Jesus without his power and his spirit. It would be as ridiculous as saying you can be a light bulb without electricity. I mean, you can pretend you are, but you won't be. And so he began to release his spirit into the disciples and they began to walk through the world in which they lived and encounter people who were sick and broken, laid hands on them, they began to get healed. And the disciples were probably quite shocked as well. And people were saying, this is extraordinary because we saw this in Jesus and now we're seeing it in them. And eventually, when Paul went to Antioch many years later, they would say that these people looked like little Jesuses. That's why they were called Christians. They didn't have to say, what's our brand? How are we going to name ourselves? What are we going to do? How are we going to impact the world? It flowed from, out, from inside out. And so in Acts, in these first five chapters, we've seen how the disciples began to manifest the love and the power of Jesus, touch lives. And then you would think that because they were doing that, they would just become famous like Jesus. But their greatest opposition were the people who said they were spiritual. The greatest opposition were the Jewish people who at the time 
said, this is a threat to our existence, our job security as priests and as the head of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the temple and everything else. And these guys are making us look foolish because these guys come from Galilee, they speak with accents, they don't have a degree and they're healing people and we can't do anything. We tell them to bring sacrifices, we ask them for money, we tell them if they go through these things and they speak to us, then they will be reconciled with God through us. And Jesus had the audacity to step right out of all of that and says, here I am, everybody can come to the Father through me. And so there was a problem. And when people are threatened and when people feel like they're losing their jobs and when people feel like they can't compete, they get angry and aggressive and so they started flogging these guys, calling them up, trying to intimidate them. And the biggest problem in Acts 3, 4 is these guys wouldn't be intimidated. These are the ones who ran away when they were, Jesus was crucified saying, you know, I don't know him. No, 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 no. Now they were filled with conviction in God's spirit and they got flogged. They said, that we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard and they got flogged. And when they ended up going out bleeding, they go, we suffered with Jesus. Isn't that cool? What a compliment. And they kept on going back into the marketplace. The religious leaders didn't know what to do with this. They put them in jail and an angel appeared to let them out. And then they locked the doors again, so they thought they were in until they called them up before the Sanhedrin the next morning. And they went and they said, there's nobody here. Where are they? They're in the marketplace doing what exactly if we told them not to do. See, when you put it in our ordinary language and roll it out, we're talking about ordinary people in an ordinary society, in fact, in an ordinary society that was violent and aggressive and oppressive. They didn't have human rights. They didn't have unions. They didn't have all kinds of protections. Because dog eats dog, and if you get killed, you get killed. And they said, we're up for it. And that's how the church began to grow. Extraordinarily enough, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the cost, in the midst of the sacrifice, people wanted to say, I want to buy into that. Now you're seeing the same thing in the Middle East. You're seeing the same things with people who sign up for ISIS. There's something in the cry of people, whether it's wrong or right, that want meaning. And they say, I will join up to die for something rather than live in this place. And that's why often people who recruit, recruit in the poor places where people have no hope and say, well, I'll give you hope and purpose. Go and fight for this against your oppressors. It's the same message, just in the wrong context. And so these disciples were beginning to, to stand up and speak up and live out the message of Jesus in the culture in which they lived. They didn't stay in the upper room. And they were beginning to form groups and growing groups. And it got to the stage where they ended up with a lot of people. And after a while, when you have a lot of people, you have to work out how you're going to manage this, organize this, all the rest of that. And that's where we pick up the story in uh, Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, I just want to come back to something I said earlier, which was, you know, the, they had known miracles, they'd known imprisonment, they'd known speaking in public, they'd been rescued by angels, they were admired by many and attacked by many. And one of the things we're often praying for, it's, it's quite sort of hip these days to do, is say, Lord, we want more of you, we're chasing after more of you, we want more of you. And at our time on Wednesday, just felt like God saying, well, how, how much more do you want? How much more do you think there is? I mean, what do you think I'm holding back? What if he says there isn't any more? I've given you everything. And the issue is not that I'm holding back. The issue is how do you receive? And the picture we had, I had was, uh, you know, if something is full and you want more, it just piles on and falls off. And it seems like God was saying, if you want more, then die more. If you want, it's what John the Baptist said. If you want more of me, there's got to be less of you because something's got to give. So if you want more of me, but you don't want to give up any of you, you're just going to have superficial experiences. You're going to chase after those. 
you'll have your sort of uh, potted plant full of labels that say, I love Jesus, but the, co- the, the content will be the same. There will be, no, there will be nothing to fill. So I'll, I'll sort of pour on you and you might have a great experience, but then it won't st- stick because there's nothing's been given up. You've got to make room for me, for me. And one of the ways you know what God is doing about making room is you listen to what's going on in you when life happens. See, one of the things if you're full and you don't want to give anything up is you just blame everybody else. You then say God is not good and everybody else is to blame while I remain full and then I'm full of anger and all this other stuff. But if I say, Lord, why am I getting angry? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? He starts saying, well, why don't you give it to me? And as he give us, we give it to him, as we give the stuff that we struggle with to him, we're creating emptiness so that he can fill it. He says, why don't you give me your anger and I'll give you peace and forgiveness? I like my anger. I mean, I'm justified. It gives me identity. I've been angry for a long time. And also, I mean, I buy into the culture I live in, which I'm a victim. Because this was done to me when I was three, and I'm now 43, and I'm still living off that. And how's it working? Not great, but I know who I am. I'm a victim. I belong to three support groups. And I I get my identity from our agreeing that we are victims. Oh, when did you last take responsibility for your life? I never have, because I'm a victim. I'm caricaturing. But that doesn't just happen with drug addicts. It happens with all kinds of us inside. And guess what? When we ask God to start working in us, he starts bringing that up. Because he says, I can't fill it if you won't empty it. And you won't empty what you don't even know exists. Because I'm not into denial. I'm into the Galilee. I want you to be free. But a slave doesn't experience freedom if a slave doesn't even know he's a slave. God is good. And he loves you passionately. And me passionately. He just has far greater things for you than to settle for something less. And so what the disciples had in mind when they still started to follow Jesus on the shores of Galilee was nothing like what they ended up with in Jerusalem. Peter, a fisherman speaking in the marketplace of Jerusalem to the leadership of the church. How ridiculous is that? Yet he did. This gospel has power in the midst of ordinary and extraordinary life. These guys were sharing in the context of Judaism. They were sharing in the context of the people who they had grown up with and knew. Jewish believers who didn't believe the Messiah had come and they were declaring he has come. By implication, therefore, we have just missed something incredible. We have just actually totally screwed up. But God has sent us to say there is forgiveness and there is healing and there is hope in the name of Jesus. Why that's good news when it lifts out of the page and goes into my heart is... Well, if God could forgive that, there's hope for me. That means there's nothing in your life that God cannot forgive. There's nothing that rises up in you and says, I'm not spiritual. I'd rather like Kerry saying, I won't fit in there. There's nothing that you have ever done that God's going to say, Pooh, that really, I better get the angels and consult on this because this is overwhelming. Nothing that you have ever done is overwhelming to God. He wants to release healing and freedom at very, very deep levels. And that's why it's a journey of a lifetime. And so it was a Tuesday, I think, and Peter was in his office looking up the news on the internet, and Barnabas comes in says, uh, Peter, we've got a problem. We've got all these people, and guess what? The Hellenistic Jews are complaining to the Hebraic Jews. We're all Jews, but they're Greeks and we're Hebrews. And they're complaining. Why? Because you show, the Hebrews are showing favoritism. Our widows are not getting looked after. This is the supernatural, spiritual kingdom of God on earth in Jerusalem, and they've got problems of distribution of food. Now, it's worth noting that they were trying to meet the needs of widows and orphans. They didn't just say, Jesus, the one who fed 5,000, we pray we bl- you bless the widows, and they go off. 
they actually got the food and they fed them. And in doing so, they ended up with strife because human beings usually look at each other and compare each other and compete and then they get miserable. Even though they w- they're all in need, you care for me more than you. Peter, and I'm making this up, obviously, I mean, you know, who, who they went to. They went to the, the, the apostles and the apostles gathered together and they said, what are we going to do about this? Because in their culture, we did things together. In our culture, we live individually. In our culture, we suck it up. In our culture, I'm not going to tell you I have a need because it's humiliating. In our culture, we create things of, well, I'm not in need because I got what I deserved and I worked hard and if you worked hard, you would work it out. In our culture, we live in pride and judgment and arrogance um, and it's amazing what we do. In that culture, it was like, well, let's get together and see what happens. And so they got together and they said, what are we going to do about this? Because there's a legitimate need. The, the orphan, the, the widows of the heap, the Hellenistic widows are feeling like we don't love them and that's not our heart. So they discussed it together and then they said, well, okay, let's, let's get seven men to, to head up that ministry. So they looked around and said, who are seven men who are doing nothing? I mean, who are guys who are really not on fire? They're like on the fringes of the church. Let's try and draw them in through this ministry. Or maybe a few wives whose husbands don't come to church. Let's try and get them involved. Maybe it's just a way of getting them in. They didn't say that. They said, what's the cream of the crop? Men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. They said, we can't serve at tables because we need to do prayer and teaching and we're already being flogged and we've actually already been serving with Jesus for three and a half years. We served at tables on the mountain when 5,000 were... They've done this. They've done that. It's not avoiding it. It's just they need to take responsibility now for the spreading of the word, which actually means we'll get flogged for you while you wait at table. And so they agreed and they got these seven men together and these men were appointed to look after the widows, the Hellenistics and the Greeks, the Hellenistics and the, and the Hebrews. And two of those we know, one was Stephen and one was Philip. And both of those were Greeks because their names are of Greek origin. What's interesting to me is that they take the most equipped people and they say, we would like you to be the servants. You see, many of us are looking for anointings from God. We want positions or we want ministries or we want another prophetic word. And God just says, why don't you just love those around you first, serve them. You know what the fruit of the Spirit is? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. What are those? Those are all relational gifts. They're all relational gifts. You say, well, I don't have the gift of love. You, you can't have a gift of fruit. Fruit is the evidence of. It's the wrong question. Where Jesus lives... That's what comes out. I went and, uh, into the garden yesterday and picked a bunch of uh, apples. It's amazing because there's two apple trees there and believe it or not, there are apples on them, which confirms they're apple trees. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, generosity are fruits of God's spirit. They grow on Christians. If they're not growing on Christians, something's wrong. Oh, but I, I, I just didn't feel like doing apples this year. Honey, you can't help but grow apples if you're rooted and it's effortless. Notice how the apple trees work and all the fruit trees work. What's God like? He created it. He says, well, let's do three apples every tree. We don't want to spoil them. It's, it's, it's too much. It's apples that fall off. It's apples everywhere. Fruit trees are like that. There's fruit everywhere. There's too much. It's how God works. So we talk about God being generous and he's good and you go, well, if he's generous and good, then are we generous and good? Because he lives in us, we say. So what's the fruit like? Notice that 
when you read that Acts passage, what happens? The disciples get together, the apostles get together, and they say, choose seven men who are known among you. In our culture, we get offended because we go, nobody's recognizing my gift. No one's recognizing my ministry. And that should be a clue. Maybe it's not tasting that good. Maybe the fruit of your ministry actually is sour. Oh, that's why community is important. Community is important to grow in humility, to grow in, 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 in teachability, to grow in being able to grow in the thing that is the ministry. But at the end of the day, the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience are what is cultivated most powerfully in community. Out of community, you make declaration about who I am, even if you don't see it. And what we're talking about this morning is actually authentic growth that comes out of the heart of the Father that is manifest. Love looks like something. Jesus looks like something. If we want people to know Jesus, they should be amazed at the quality of our love and generosity to them. We have discussions here about this building. And we talk about business and not business and should it be this and should it be that and all the other things. You know what? I, I'll tell you how I see this building. I see this building as a gift from God to demonstrate heaven on earth. What does that mean? It means that the business model is not compelling to me. It's too earthbound. The business model works. I'm not disputing business principles. Those are fine. I'm merely saying it's not, it's not enough. It's not radical enough. So what does it look like? I think it just looks like when people come here, when people actually engage here, they experience the love of presence of God. Now they don't know it's the presence of God. They're going to experience the love and generosity of the people here. What does that look like? I think it looks like taking care of this place, for instance. I've put out a note for six weeks now asking for volunteers to do the hedge and we've got to do some repair over there. I have, I've had one volunteer. So in my philosophy, I just go, we'll just get there eventually. What, I, what is on my heart? I want to have the best facility in town that, that bears witness to the love of God and the love of Jesus. I want us to be a reputation. You know what the landlord does at Jericho Road? They actually come and help us. They help us move. They help us paint. They, they sometimes help us even with our bills because we couldn't make it at the beginning. They're so, and they're not stupid, but they, they, we've never seen anything like it because that's what heaven looks like on earth. It looks like something. I'm trying to give you examples because I'm going to show you a clip in a minute. I'm talking about how to look beyond ourselves. We have a fountain out there in the hallway. It, was, it, was, it came up out of a prophetic word that talked about giving thanks and having piles of stones in memory of what God has done. And we wanted to do something that was in memory of God's faithfulness providing for us financially in the first six, or six years of this church. So I've got a fountain, filled it with water and put it on. Put big labels up behind there saying this is a declaration of God's faithfulness and his kindness to us. And walk in here from time to time, the fountain's pulled out, the plug's out, it's not working, it's all grey on the outside. And every single time, for me, I just say, I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, we can't even put water in here. So I fill it, and other people do, but I fill it, and I turn it on, and I get it going again. I said, Lord, as long as I'm here, that fountain is going to flow. Because it's a, it's a symbol of gratitude to you, and a witness of gratitude to you. It's a pile of stones that says, you have been faithful. And it takes me 10 minutes to go to, the, to the, the, the kitchen, take a can, and fill that thing up. Now, what I'm asking for is like we grow up in our shared ownership of what God is doing here. So if you walk past and you see it's, it needs water, go to the fridge, on top of the fridge is a can, fill it up, and as you fill it up, say, thank you, Jesus, that water flows out of this tap. It's like your streams of living water. You carry it over to the fountain, you pour it in, and say, thank you that you've given me ownership of this part of this vision. So I can take responsibility. You see, what the disciples were doing 
with those seven men was they were sharing responsibility for what was happening. We want to see the church grow. We want to see things happen. He says, will you serve? I don't want you to pray right now. I want you to serve. Will you stack chairs? Will you go and repair the building on the outside? Because people are going to actually be coming in that side more and more. Will you actually spend two days, because I think that's all it takes, to actually paint some area? I don't have time. I don't believe you. And it's not a sacrifice. I'm not talking from sacrificial martyrdom. I really am not. I'm just talking about, I want heaven to be reflected on earth in the things we do and the things we touch. I want people to be blessed. I want people to go, there is an extraordinary spirit in these people who live in Jericho Road. And I can't put my finger on it. Have I just... Uh, God's heart is that all will come to know him. I am not speaking today, and I'm, not showing, I'm going to show you a video clip now. This is not about guilt. It is about how do, we, how do we grow in generosity of action in a culture that is so self-absorbed. And I came across this with Francis Chan, um, and he'll speak, let him speak, and we'll just end it after that. So... It's not about us selling everything and going to Africa. It is about us having soft hearts, having humble hearts, having hearts that are able to be touched by the Spirit of God. It is about us beginning to see our lives in a perspective that says, Lord, what can I offer? We do live in the 5% of the most wealthy places in the world, which comes with responsibility. And so one of the ways of practicing is just starting to ask God to open our hearts and eyes to those around us, not just our families, where there's no payback. But we just love because he loved. We just care because that could be my child. Or we care because I don't know the story behind why you got here. All I know is right now you're in need. And you can have some of mine. You'll see the greatest generosity in the world amongst the poorest people. I mean, time and again, we see that we saw that in India, we've seen that in Africa. Among the poorest people, they share to the last bit of what they have. We have storage units, and if we have to go into that, we get offended. We just got to know that we are very poor in many ways. We're very insecure. We say we trust God, but I need a storage unit. Say we trust God, but I need three of these. We know I say I trust God, but I'm not available until I've got this amount of money in the bank. You can call it anything else, but you you know what the fruit of Jesus looks like? It looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and sacrifice. That's what it looks like. And if you want to be filled with God's Spirit and His kingdom present on earth as in heaven, then that's what we begin to look like citizens of a kingdom where we live from a place where my father has everything that I need and he knows everything about me and he knows and he can supply everything I need so therefore I can be generous. And it flows from the inside out. We're going to share in breaking bread. I was thinking about this. I never thought of it like this. You know, Jesus gives us this meal. It's bread and wine. He could have said, I want six ounce steaks, eggs, fries. Whenever you get together, in memory of me, eat steak and eggs. Problem is, that would be a banquet that most people couldn't enter into because they couldn't afford it. So he takes something really, really simple 
every day, very accessible. And he says there's a principle here that through the crumbs and the, br- and the wine, a sip of wine, the kingdom of God can explode. It's the multiplication of fish and bread. Don't be deceived. A few crumbs and a little bit of wine, anointed by the Spirit of God, becomes a multitude of feeding in the Spirit. It's not magic. It's just the way the kingdom works. God's ways aren't our ways. And he takes ordinary lives that are very, very humble, often have not much, and he uses them to touch people in ways that are remarkable because all he needs is a willing heart and an open hand. And he will do extraordinary things. You don't need money to be generous. You don't need actually anything to be generous other than to be a vessel that's got some room for him to move. And I'll tell you a a way that you can know if you're just being very self-absorbed is that you just become critical. And when you're around, you just absorb stuff. It's all about you. And that's why I think he showed those pictures of going, get some perspective. It doesn't mean be guilty. It just means get some perspective. Because what you, with what you have right now, you should be extraordinarily happy and grateful. So if you're not, you either think that you're going to get happiness through stuff or you're just going to be miserable. And Jesus has come that you can be free and fully alive, that he comes that he might live in us, that we might be servants. So let's stand and ask him to do in us what we can't do ourselves. you've probably discovered as I have that I don't have the character or the resources to be loving and kind and forgiving. When I'm distant from Jesus, I know what I'm like. I get angry, I get jealous, I get bitter, I get resentful, I get bloody-minded, more so than when I'm with him. I'm a work in progress like you are. When I'm close to Jesus... I have far more compassion, I have far more patience, I have far more kindness, I have far more generosity, I have far more vision for what I don't yet see, I have patience with other people when I think they should be doing this and they're not doing this, sometimes. And Jesus is with us today and he says, you know, I'm not condemning you, I'm not condemning, I'm not, that's not the heart of this message. The heart of this message is how do you sh- together bear witness to my kingdom in Port Alberni. And where are you trying to do it on your own, in isolation or in privacy? Where are you trying to do it in your own strength? Where are you angry with your brothers and sisters when I'm actually using your brothers and sisters to help you come to terms with something that I want to heal inside you? Where have I withheld my love from you? Where have I judged you? Where have I said, I condemn you because of what you've done and there is no hope for you? Where have I done that to you? And of course he'll say, nowhere. Where are you, somebody who has not received grace? Where are you, somebody who I have not shown extraordinary kindness for because I have extended my kindness and grace to you when you do not deserve it? You have squandered what I've given. You've lied to me. You've said like Peter, I never will and you have done it. Why should I trust you? 
And he says, because I see something else in you too. I see the cry of your heart. So I'm not giving up on you. But I will lead you again and again and again to understand that you cannot follow me in your own strength. And the, and the, the litmus test of my presence in you is your kindness to other people. The love that you carry for other people. Your concern for other people. Your servant heart for other people. The witness of my spirit in, in you is not the songs you sing. It's not the money you give. It's the time you lay down that others would have life because you have lent a hand. That's what it looks like. As I have loved you, so I command you to love others. And again and again, I have to say, God, I can't do that. And he says, I know, but I can. So all I'm asking you is to give me permission and give me space to work in you and then through you. And I will make you look extraordinarily good. And you will go, but Lord, I know what I'm like. And I'll go, I know what you're like, but I know what I'm like too. And a little bit of me in you goes a long way. And the essence of humility is when you know a little bit of me in you is going a long way and you also know there's a lot of you still to deal with. And you're in awe because I bless you with my presence even though you're trying to get out of half of it. So Father, I I just thank you for my brothers and sisters as we share this journey. And I pray that we're not sitting here under condemnation at all. But I do pray we sit under conviction. I do pray that you give us revelation of our attitudes. I do pray that you give us revelation of where we have become self-absorbed. And I ask you to forgive us for that. I pray that you give us revelation of your goodness and kindness and how rich we are. I pray that you forgive us where we've tried to segment your kingdom to the bits that suit us and the other bits we don't pay attention to. We want to be fully citizens of the kingdom of heaven on earth. We ask you to forgive us where we cut off our brothers and sisters, where they hurt us or where we're irritated by them and we say we don't need them, we don't need them, we don't need them. And and you, God, are placing them in our hearts and lives because we actually do need them because that's the refining that you're doing in us and through, through them to us. So, Father, we're asking that you grow us up, that we would become joyful servants. And many of us are doing this. So it's not like starting from square one. It's just there's no resting on laurels. So just ask the Lord what he's saying to you because he's not condemning you and neither am I. I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you but it is part of the gospel. They gathered together seven men who were known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. Two of those men went out and changed the world with their testimonies and their life. One was killed and his blood shed was the source of Saul's conversion who became Paul. You are extraordinary when you are filled with the spirit of God. And he's saying to you Will you allow me to show you things that maybe you haven't seen before, needs in other people? Will you allow me to use your resources to bless others? Will you allow me to do extraordinary things through you? Will you allow me to do things through you and through the stuff that you have that doesn't make sense to you? So Father, whatever you're saying to us individually, I just want to bless your word. I want to pray against anything that would take away from your word this morning. It's very easy to get defensive or critical under this word and I just break that in the name of Jesus. It's not the spirit of this word. And as we come to share in your bread and, and wine, we ask you to fill us up again uh, with, with what 